Welcome to the PID webinar. As always, it's a pleasure to have you here. Today, we are starting a new series. As you know, we like to do series on, uh, on our webinars because quite frankly, some of the topics are very difficult to deal with in one go. So we think it's important to have webinars, a uh, series of webinars. So we're going to do a new series on aid. And I'm going to start that off. We'll have three webinars on aid, and uh, those three webinars I'd like to start sharing with you. Um, so let's see, we begin. Can everybody see the slide or you can't see the slide? Even I can't see the slide. So I don't know what's gone wrong. Okay, we're going to begin our webinar on series of webinars on aid. And I think we should stay in English today because we might have some donors willing to attend or wanting to attend. At least I hope they do because we really want a dialogue on this subject. It's a very important subject for us because we really try and uh, uh, open up new topics. And these topics are important for all of us to understand because uh, they affect us. So we're going to talk about aid because aid plays a very large role in our policy. As you can see from your cut from our cartoon up there, which is from a new local newspaper. Sorry, sir. sir How... Can you share your screen, sir? Uh, we are unable. You are, we, we are viewing your Zoom screen, sir. Yeah, I have a screen share. Okay, let me try again. Let's see if we can try again. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let me start sharing screen again. Okay. And if we do... Yes, sir. Let's see. Everybody can see it? Yes, sir. We can see. Lovely. Okay, great. So we begin with this cartoon from a local newspaper, which talks about how the how Pakistan is running with loans in front. I'm if at the back and a very scraggy, rough landscape ahead. So this kind of sets the stage for our webinar. And as I said, this is the first in our series. I'd like everybody to keep their mics mute so that our speakers can talk first. And of course, we'll allow everybody to speak. We want everybody to have a chance to participate. Okay, we're going to have three roundtables, as I said. You've already got the flyer, and it tells you what we're going to discuss, the complexity and various things of policy um, of, of aid. And we're going to showcase to you three people who have written about this subject, two PhD theses, one book. So these are not things people who are just speaking. They're actually going to present their concrete research where they devoted years to studying the subject. So we've got three people who've done dissertations and books on this. So this is going to be a very informed discussion. So please bear with us. And we've got our speakers today. I think we've got a great lineup. Fahim Jahangir, who still with Paid, although he's trying to leave, but that's besides the point. He's one of us. He did his PhD thesis on this subject, and this is going to be his PhD thesis he's going to present. Then, of course, we've got Vakar Masood. Everybody knows him. He's the former Secretary of Finance, former Secretary of EAD, a very well-known economist, writes extensively. In fact, is engaged in writing a book today and is also engaged with the government now in trying to uh, 
develop something on subsidies and macro policy. So it's always good to hear Vakar. I think he'll have something very interesting and provocative to say. And he knows the aid business inside out because he's dealt with it in, from every direction in Pakistan. Then we've got Nasru Milena Mia, uh, Nasru Milena Mia, head of the country program unit um, in the resident mission of the Asian Development Bank. So Nasru Milena, welcome. Very glad to have you here. Well, let me also begin with another cartoon. Now, this is very interesting. This is from December 1948 or something. This is the early days of Pakistan. Not today, not today. Please bear in mind, this is from Pakistan Times, December 1950, as you can see. And it has uh, Pakistan on crutches, who looks rather like Nazmuddin or Lakatali or something. And somebody at the back from the window is saying, let's keep them like this because they'll keep, let's keep them addicted because they'll behave like children. And then they talk about $600,000 of US aid government that did this to Pakistan in the Truman program. So that sets the stage for us what we want to discuss. And uh, this is again, a reminder for us. These are the fund programs that Pakistan has had. So you can see we've been in a fund program most of our history, and which is why the first cartoon that I showed you that we are following, the IMF is driving us and we are going over a very rough, craggy landscape. Uh, goaded by donor loans. And this is the picture of a macroeconomics, macroeconomic, very rough picture, very quick picture. Our long-term growth is declining, volatile and declining growth. And um, our investment is the lowest in South Asia. In fact, the lowest probably anywhere. And even the, uh, Bangladesh, India, etc. everybody's ahead of us. And, I, and our investment is declining. So despite all this aid, We've had a PID series of roundtables, webinars. You can see we're very active. And these are the key messages we've got that, hey, policy inconsistency, poor tax policy, poor policy development is one of the problems. Transactions costs are very high in this economy, hugely, people are saying. We talk to all kinds of people. And of course, even the states maintain that their HRM, HRM human resource management, corporate governance is very bad. But they say, what can we do? We can't develop. Market development is very bad. There's overregulation and lack of clarity in markets. Energy is a huge governance problem. Cities are a market as well as a governance problem. Information risk sharing mechanisms do not exist in this country. So these are major impediments in, 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 in policy, and we have to think about those. Now, why are we taking up foreign policy? Very simple. It has a very extensive role in the country. People even feel that foreign policy is what makes policy. Foreign aid is what makes policy. Foreign aid is made by people who are not accountable. Donors are not accountable to anybody. They're not responsible. They don't take responsibility for what they do. When you look at their own evaluations, I've looked at many of their evaluations, as many of you, their own evaluations say that projects have failed, but Nobody takes their evaluations into account here. So you've got a number of projects. But at the same time, they make a number of policies for us. For example, the Bhaptan bundling was done by donors. IPP was done by donors. NEPRA was done by donors. The law was written by them. CCP law was written by the donors. TARP did the tax policy for us for many years, and they're doing it again. Civil service reform program was done by donors, where they took a bunch of our civil servants to Harvard. The public finance, uh, the, uh, sorry, the public finance Law has been written by the donors recently. The debt law was written by the donors. SAP was created a number of donors, uh, donor NGOs, which still run a large part of our policy. And the question that we ask always is who controls our thought industry? Who speaks to the universities? I keep telling the um, HEC that, hey, if you don't need us, 
put us out of our misery. Let the donors do all the research for this country. So that is the backdrop for this discussion. And now with this backdrop, I will hand it over to Fahim Jahangir to present us his PhD thesis. Fahim, take over, please. You have 20 minutes, Fahim, because we have to give Vakar a chance he has to leave. Right, sir. Thank you uh, so much, Dr. Nadeem and colleagues at PAI, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, and our distinguished speakers, Dr. Vakar and uh, Nasser. Uh, let me just share my screen here so that we can start. Okay, can, can, can you see my... Yeah, we can. Go ahead. Okay, admin, if you can just uh, remove me from the co-host so that I can, you know, just uh, concentrate on my uh, presentation. No, thank you. I'll be, I'll be talking about, uh, uh, as uh, Dr. Neem mentioned, that I'll be talking about the foreign aid to Pakistan. And uh, instead of usual uh, talk about uh, the trends of foreign aid, how many aid was uh, uh, given to us and how we used it and what is the effect effectiveness of foreign aid and things like that, uh, in this session, we would uh, actually try to understand the complexities and constraints involved in uh, uh, managing uh, uh, foreign aid in Pakistan. And uh, yeah, so if you look at the literature, the vast literature on foreign aid, uh, there is an extensive research and analytical work which was uh, done in the last six decades. And uh, despite that, uh, the contribution to development uh, of foreign aid uh, is still contested. It's still de uh, under debate uh, whether aid is good or bad. Um, and if you look at the literature, the evaluation of foreign aid outcomes, which is the aid effectiveness, that actually dominates the aid debate. Uh, and uh, what actually is not focused much is the practical working of the aid policy processes. Uh, that means that how aid decisions are managed and they are transformed into action. So today we will uh, try to discuss those, uh, some of those constraints and complexities. I will be uh, mainly just focusing on the six areas, three complexities and three constraints. I'll be talking about the aid industry, which is very massive. I'll talk, uh, talk about the complex aid delivery system and the multi-level uh, aid policy processes. Then we will talk about the constraints in the context of Pakistan. We'll talk about the public policy, uh, and economic growth in Pakistan. We'll talk about the public sector capacity, the government's capacity, and how uh, donors' technical assistance is uh, helping us to uh, tackle uh, those challenges. And then there is a multiplicity or uh, proliferation of aid suppliers, recipients, and activities. We'll talk about that under the constraints. So if you look at the aid industry, uh, uh, with steady evolution, uh, if you see the aid delivery system has transformed considerably. Uh, unlike 1970, when there were only like uh, 14, 15 multilateral and bilateral donor agencies, today uh, the partner organizations and budgets, they have grown enormously. There are huge number of uh, uh, development partners and actors uh, today involved in uh, the aid delivery system today. So if we look at this uh, 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 
can, can you please the can may I request the host to kindly remove me from the co-host because I'm continuously getting this uh, uh, you know uh, notifications here. Okay, uh, if you look at uh, the uh, recent the, uh, the recent data from OECD creditor reporting system, which is online, uh, we see that there are 153 international donors and there are 146 recipient countries in 2016, uh, 2017 who were engaged uh, in this aid industry. Uh, Kharas to 2010 actually calculated that uh, there were 263 multilateral aid agencies and there were 56 bilateral aid agencies who were providing aid to a huge number of recipients, including the government, including the private sector, consultants, governments, think tanks, and so many. Uh, Moyo in 2010 said that uh, there were like 500,000 people who were directly involved uh, in the uh, aid delivery system. Uh, so if we look at, uh, oh, I'm getting this again. Sorry. Yeah. So if you if you look at the aid establishment in Pakistan, uh, so what happens is in in 2018 2019 there are 34 bilateral donors, official bilateral donor agencies operating in Pakistan. There are 33 multilateral donors, including 21 UN agencies, and uh, they were managing like more than 2,000 project activities in Pakistan. Uh, over and above, there are uh, around 100 to uh, 100,000 to 100, uh, 150,000 uh, active NGOs, civil society organizations, international NGOs, and research and development institutes who are getting funding. Uh, from these bilateral donors and multilateral donors and other sources, and they are also active in this aid industry. Uh, on the part of the government, there are at the federal level, there are 38 divisions of 35 federal ministries. And at the four provinces, in the four provinces, there are 161 provincial departments, autonomous bodies and institutes who are managing aid and uh, who are actually uh, involved in um, uh, this engagement. Apart from these uh, numbers, uh, there are other actors also involved directly or indirectly in the uh, management of aid, and these include the civil and military bureaucracy. Uh, there are a number of consultants, think tanks, contractors. There are pressure groups, political groups who really try to pursue and persuade their own agendas in the academia and social and electronic media, to name a few. Uh, this is the uh, diagram from the OECD uh, DSC uh, in which they actually uh, uh, landscape the, the architecture of aid. Uh, these include the bilateral donors, multilateral donors, global programs, NGOs, both international and local NGOs. Then there are private and commercial sector firms and banks and investors. So this is uh, the aid delivery system, but uh, usually if we uh, went about the aid uh, delivery system, uh, the usually uh, uh, concept which is normally conceived is that it's a linear chain. For instance, the money is collected from the tax from the country, the rich governments uh, in the West, in the North, uh, they basically give money to the recipient government, the poor government in the South, and they, uh, through contractors, they execute the project or program and the uh, 
uh, money or the benefits actually reaches to the uh, poor beneficiaries uh, there. Uh, this is true, but uh, gov donor government, uh, they do not only give money to the recipient government, but uh, they actually channel their uh, money through uh, multilateral donors, uh, international finance institutes, bilateral donor agencies, either it's their own agencies operating in the country or they also uh, pool money in uh, other countries, uh, missions and agencies too. Uh, they give money to the UN system, charities, private firms, INGOs, NGOs, uh, private foundations, and etc. So it's a linear chain, uh, which is often conceived uh, that how uh, this is how it actually works. Uh, this is uh, uh, right, but it is another concept of uh, aid policy network uh, in which uh, on which I worked on my thesis. Uh, in in that work, I actually mapped the aid policy network in Pakistan. And I came up with this uh, very simple graph, uh, a picture of a very complex uh, aid policy network in Pakistan. If you see that there are mainly nine uh, a group of actors who are involved in managing aid policy processes aid in Pakistan, these include the federal government, these include the provincial governments, then there are bilateral donors, Paris club, there are bilateral donors, non-Paris club, there are multilateral donors, uh, and then there are external interest groups, which include uh, international consultancy firms, in international independent consultants, international NGOs, international research and development foundations. Then there is a very large group of domestic interest group uh, here, uh, if you see, and these include the local development partners, uh, such as uh, local NGOs and civil society organizations. They also have NGO networks. Uh, there are also public-private entities. Uh, politicians are also part of uh, this domestic interest group. And uh, uh, then we have um, an independent group. They are not as independent, actually, but uh, I actually named them independent. Uh, and these include uh, the farmer actors, the knowledge brokers, academia, think tanks, contractors, media, traders, exporters long list of uh, actors who are involved directly or indirectly uh, in managing and influencing aid decisions in Pakistan. Then finally, there is a smaller group of international uh, yet uh, influential group of actors. These include the OECD um, uh, and then the UN uh, high level forums and uh, other organizations uh, like that. Uh, uh, complexity which we need to understand is that uh, we usually look at uh, foreign aid effectiveness or foreign whenever we try to evaluate or whenever we try to uh, uh, assess the effectiveness or value of uh, foreign aid in a country we usually think of inputs and outputs only we think there are aid policies aid modalities we think about uh, there are resource commitments the volume of aid and we think about uh, this much money was dispersed by this uh, certain donor and that was dispersed and at the end we have uh, completed certain project or program and we have achieved a task and the beneficiaries, the target group uh, uh, received the benefits. Uh, actually, this is not that simple. It's not that uh, straight. Uh, what's actually happening in between inputs and output is, is uh, this black box, this complex black box in which Basically, the actors who are involved and who are managing this aid uh, 
they are managing all these affairs on daily basis, on weekly basis, on monthly basis. And uh, until and unless we uh, don't explore this black box of the aid policy process, we will not be uh, able to understand which project was successful and why and how, and at the same time, which projects were not successful, why and how. So for learning for uh, everyone is that uh, to explore this black box is the key to understand which projects were successful or unsuccessful. Uh, having said that, there is also a complex network of actors involved uh, influencing decision-making uh, at all levels. Um, so uh, keeping that view also is very important to understand the complexity of the aid policy process. So if I just uh, tell you at the administrative level, uh, if uh, someone from the EAD, uh, they will tell you there are basically two types of uh, management processes uh, in the EAD. There is one loan management process and one is grant management process. And if you look at the loan management process, uh, this process involves six phases, 22 to 25 stages, and around 150 to 162 steps involved to manage one project, uh, which is uh, uh, based on uh, foreign aid loan. So it's, it's quite complex and quite lengthy, uh, uh, the loan management process. Similarly, only one phase is off, uh, in the grant management process that involves some 13 to 16 stages, 86 to 98 steps and in five phases. I have presented this in the uh, figure here. If you look, there is only one repayment is missing. Uh, the stage of uh, step of uh, repayment is missing in the grant management. Otherwise, all these stages include the negotiation, signing, recording, disbursement, repayment and closing. And each stage uh, step requires uh, several steps and stages uh, through which this uh, process goes. So it's not that simple if we think that World Bank or Asian Development Bank or any agency is giving you money and you're using that money and you are building some project or something like that. It's quite tedious, it's quite lengthy, it's quite complex. Uh, coming to the constraints, uh, basically, uh, if you look at that uh, uh, diagram, uh, which I also use in several places, including my recent blog at uh, by the website, uh, it's a GDP growth of Pakistan from 1950s to 2018. And on the top, there are uh, political and military regime periods, uh, which is showing. Uh, and then on the in the in the bottom, uh, there is um, some uh, prominent uh, events, political events or other events which happened uh, in in that time, and that actually uh, influenced our decision making and management of uh, economic and public policy in Pakistan. So if you look look at that, uh, it shows that Pakistan's history is characterized by political instability, multiple military coups conflict with India, involvement with the others war, natural disaster, and then we faced sanctions at multiple times, energy crisis, security hazard, terrorism challenges. All these actually undermine the continuation of development policies in Pakistan, which resulted in unsteady economic growth, short-lived economic booms, and external and uh, internal uh, conflicts. 
so that's a, a, a huge challenge, the, the uh, a constraint to so many things, including the management of foreign aid. Uh, then comes this diagram in which I uh, tried to show the GDP growth. And uh, in the last three regimes of President uh, General Musharraf and the People P, uh, People's Party's regime and PML regimes, at the bottom, look at the number of uh, uh, medium to long-term uh, uh, policies, plans, which we developed. Uh, over the year, there have been a proliferation of policies. Uh, to date, we lack to improve the living standard of our people. Uh, and if you look at these programs, except the medium-term development framework, P, uh, uh, MTDF 2005 or 2010, uh, other than that, uh, no program completed its time period. They were either never implemented, they were either implemented halfly, half-heartedly, or they were just slashed by a new regime and they came in. And then if you look at that, uh, there is also uh, the medium, the, uh, sorry, the Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals. So today, actually, what happening is that that in the absence of the clear and comprehensive planning, we actually left space for donors to influence our decision making. Today, we uh, have uh, moved away from policy planning to project execution. And that's too donor funded. So that's another uh, constraint I would like, I wanted to share uh, with all of you that it's, it's not entirely, uh, the mistake or entirely uh, this something to blame the donors. We actually left the space for donors to stay, to live and to flourish. It's not entirely their mistake or entirely uh, they are the one to blame too. So this is another constraint. Then comes the public sector capacity and uh, the technical donors, technical assistance to Pakistan. If you look at the public sector capacity uh, in Pakistan, there is a considerable shortage of technical skills in the public sector. Uh, my research or my PhD research shows that there is a severe shortage of research and project management skills. There is a considerable shortage of planning expertise, negotiation and administrative skills. And there are also shortages of budgeting skills and IT expertise. Over and above, there is a, a shortage of specialists and professionals. The government is mainly run by the journalists, the civil servants. Uh, there you will hardly find the specialist and professional, the technocrats. There is no technocrat cadre except for the economic cadre in uh, the Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Planning. Even they are uh, just after evaluating the PC1s and uh, conducting the CDWP meetings. And you know, time and again, they are engaging with the donors and publishing reports. Uh, we are underutilizing our specialists and technicals, uh, technocrats in, in the government. And then uh, having said that, there is a, a, a underutilization of existing trained and experienced staff in the public sector. People with the right skills, people with the right uh, uh, expertise and qualifications are not placed uh, on the right jobs. Uh, I have recently published a paper, I published my paper last month, uh, in which I actually wanted to uh, assess and explore the benefits of foreign training in Pakistan. Uh, my main focus was to look at the short-term uh, 
trading benefits in Pakistan. And these uh, reasons we come up with uh, why the government, uh, why, uh, what are the reasons which undermine the benefits of foreign trading in Pakistan. So if you look at the red bar uh, below there, uh, vast majority of respondents actually indicated that that the, uh, the placement of trained individual on non-specialized assignment is the biggest problem. It actually kills the idea when you train an officer, if you get an officer a degree from a certain foreign university or place, and then you place uh, him or her in a, uh, somewhere which is where the qualification or the knowledge or the skills are completely irrelevant. So this is the biggest problem in the government. It's not like we, we completely lack uh, people in the government who have uh, no expertise or no qualification, but they are not placed rightly. Then there is a, a lack of long-term effect on the top bar, which is there. Uh, the short-term trainings are mainly, uh, there are so many numbers, but they are mainly task-oriented. They are mainly uh, uh, designed to complete certain specific tasks for a project or a program. After that, use of that skill for a certain activity, that skill or a qualification is irrelevant anymore. Um, and then there are other factors, including the flight risk. Uh, when we train um, a government officer, uh, especially for the masters and PhDs, uh, they actually don't find themselves uh, uh, comfortable or uh, they want to leave the government actually. Uh, for two, more minutes. two more minutes. Sir, sir. Uh, the final uh, point is that uh, I'm trying to make is the multiplicity of aid. Uh, the, the presence of multiple uh, actors uh, and the aid proliferation imposes burden on the recipient government that undermines the capacity of the recipient government. This multiplicity actually uh, result in transaction cost duplication of project, weak donor-donor and donor-government coordination and, uh, and visibility factors. Um, these problems uh, also increase the, uh, with, with the multiplicity of aid, there is a sharp incre in, in increase in the number of new projects. There is a drastic de decrease in the average project size. There is a substantial increase in administrative cost. And there is a multiple foreign missions and delegations who are visiting Pakistan government offices and projects consuming valuable time and energies of the government office. I'll quickly just show two graphs here, and then I'll end my, uh, uh, my presentation here. Uh, I'm going to show you that the donors activities in Pakistan by a government and a private channel. I use this OECD data, and if you look at that, uh, the, uh, within each bar, the yellow part shows the disbursement of uh, a certain donor to the private channel, and the blue part of the bar shows the disbursement of the, uh, to the government channel. If you look at Germany, for instance, uh, in 2015, they uh, had uh, 170 project activities in Pakistan, and the average project disbursement size uh, of their disbursement in that particular year was 0.61 million. Look at China on the left of that. They had 21 uh, uh, number of projects in Pakistan and the average project disbursement size was 28 million. Now look at Sweden here. They had a very small amount of uh, small volume of aid available, but they had 59 project activities and the average disbursement size was 
0.16 million, just 0.16 million. Look at United States on the far right. They had 437 project activities in Pakistan, mostly with the private sector, small amount with the government sector, and the average project disbursement size was the 0.53 million. The point which I'm trying to make here is that donors with a small amount of money, they actually want to be visible everywhere. They disperse money, they are not very much bothered about the outcomes, they actually want to uh, keep their presence alive and uh, they want to like sprinkle uh, and they invest in, in so many uh, uh, you know projects and uh, uh, workshops conferences meetings dinners and etc so this is this actually undermines uh, the value and effectiveness of foreign aid in any country uh, this is the last graph which i want to show is <clears throat> that in 2015 this much uh, donors, these much donors actually visited Pakistan in 2015. Just look at the, uh, if I tell you, there were like 487 donor missions who actually <clears throat> visited Pakistan uh, uh, in 2015. And if we, if we calculate these uh, missions, then we will come up with two donor missions each working day on average in Pakistan. So there were always a donor mission, two donor missions uh, present in Pakistan on, ev on every working day in Pakistan in 2015. Look at this UN program uh, in, in the purple side here. Uh, if you look at the volume of funds they give to Pakistan, it's small. It's quite small as compared to UK, Asian Development Bank, World Bank, Germany, France. But look at the number of donor missions uh, they are they visiting Pakistan, 104. Look at Switzerland, 70 donor missions to Pakistan in one year. And the amount of aid must be in millions, very small. And when they come, they demand meetings with every high officials in Pakistan. The transaction costs are very high. They demand all the protocols. They demand all the meetings and things. So this all is actually creating the uh, the, uh, the, the transaction cost, higher transaction cost in Pakistan. So with this, I think I'll you can Thank you. Thank you very much, Fahim. I think you raised some very good points. Yes, it's a very large number of donors in the country now. I remember in Turkey when Kamal Darwish was there, he actually banned donor missions because he felt he had no time to do any business with anybody else. So it's a huge complex system and we have no capacity to navigate that system. There's a number of contractors, number of players. You've done a very good job inventing them. It's just beautiful. And the issue is, what kind of influence do they have in the country? They collect all our data for free. They take all our data. They even do opinion polls. They even do um, voting polls here. Everything is done by them. So how do we manage them? Let's go to the master himself, Dr. Vakar Masood. Dr. Vakar Masood, who, as I said, has been in every economic senior position in this country and it's probably one of our best economists and inshallah is coming back into the government doc sub please your views on the subject Okay. 
पर अब हमने उनके साथ बात तो करनी है ना क्या करें ठीक है well uh, very kind of you nadeem know, and uh, let me at the very outset uh, congratulate jahangir uh, saab uh, i think uh, a fantastic uh, presentation uh, uh, really on a very dry topic he has uh, brought to fore uh, some of the very uh, important lessons that one can learn and also identified i mean where do we stand at the moment and the sentiment that uh, he has expressed the underlying sentiment uh, frankly uh, i cannot agree more uh, with those sentiments uh, having worked as uh, secretary economic affairs division the main interface of pakistan i mean you know i had to say donors i say development partners to give respect to them also and to us uh, uh, as well um, so uh, in that capacity and and uh, have done so twice and then obviously as finance secretary also so uh, i've been very close to the process of foreign assistance so to say uh, the word aid is a misnomer Do- donor is a misnomer all right and uh, uh, you know even at the peak when when such uh, matters kind of justified the use of this term um it was uh, uh, really uh, uh, more <clears throat> an effort to help um, domestic producers of the paris club countries um uh, or as much as or maybe if one one looks very closely um the net transfers to to the country were very very limited and uh, even today <laughs> you you see uh, everywhere uh, the the development partners is coming and promoting uh, their own uh, <clears throat> uh, countrymen Uh, especially different in uk um, so on and so forth so <clears throat> i mean the way i look at this topic uh, i would say that there are two very fundamental periods uh, the one that ended so to say uh, with the demise of paris club uh with the demise of uh, the old uh, system of cold war um when paris club came into into being and after 1989 when uh, all those things were uh, frankly wrapped up and uh, the in the name of so called uh, globalization um uh, i mean the capital moved freely across the world and uh, the sectors that were never thought to be uh, in the private sector were promoted so all infrastructure from telecommunication down to power and gas and pipelines of all types uh, they were all handed over to the the private sector and um, the world bank uh, asian development bank all these countries 
uh, effectively uh, on these uh, agencies. They helped to uh, remove bottlenecks uh, that those uh, they were inhibiting, which were inhibiting the flow of private capital in these sectors. So, uh, you know, when when previously until that time, uh, in the framework of Paris Club, when every uh, year you will go and uh, uh, take uh, a portfolio of uh, your uh, expectations or your, your desires for uh, development partners assistance. So uh, in that uh, <clears throat> annual uh, sojourn, they will all um, select their projects and then uh, a level of assistance will be <clears throat> committed and disbursements will, will take place against those commitments over the years. So that framework uh, was replaced by, uh, you know, also uh, we ran into uh, our own problems after that. We were, we were essentially handed over to uh, IMS, so to say. Um, you know, prior to 1988, uh, nobody knows or nobody heard that IMF was giving any assistance to Pakistan. Uh, it was the first uh, SAP structural adjustment program, um, which uh, brought a new type of assistance to Pakistan, previously unknown. Uh, and the so-called notion of policy lending. And uh, with it, others also started uh, making making uh, policy loans, World Bank as well as the uh, Asian Development Bank, and uh, then that's the day when policy uh, framework was handed over to uh, these agencies. They started uh, doing thinking for Pakistan, and uh, we kept uh, abdicating our own responsibility uh, for for. Uh, for such fundamental work, which is uh, kind of raison d'etre for, for any country's existence, we handed it over to, to, to them. So uh, uh, since then, uh, you see uh, that uh, you uh, run into uh, problems. Your external sector is your nemesis. You don't uh, export enough. You don't make foreign exchange earnings enough to uh, cover your imports and uh, and then you don't have credit um, and you do so in a in a way that your reserves start falling and when reserves come down then you're left with no choice but to run for another program and then again sign off another set of policies that you will uh, undertake in the name of creating an enabling environment so that private sector investment will come and uh, your reserves will, will build up. Uh, but all those things uh, are not, are, are so familiar to us. Uh, what are the consequences of uh, those <clears throat> uh, policies? Uh, so, uh, 
you know, uh, now this is at present, uh, we have virtually no bilateral uh, uh, assistance of the type that used to come from Paris Club. And uh, the, the only new thing that has happened is China, uh, who is uh, assisting, assisting us in, in uh, fairly large amounts. And as you had seen that, um, in, I, I'm really impressed with that chart Jangir Saab has shown that um, uh, uh, the Chinese have 21 projects and every single project is through the government. And look at what has happened. And you know, it, this, this used to be a very, very uh, uh, difficult uh, topic with, with US authorities uh, when this uh, USAID was coming through uh, uh, this last um, <clears throat> Uh, a program of uh, Senator uh, Kerry and Senator Berman, uh, mm. that, that thing, uh, it was only 23% which was on, on, on the budget. Everything else was off budget. And they uh, had made a point of, of doing so and, and not accepting us and they will say they will claim that uh, we have pressure from congress we have to projectize every every single uh, aid i said we would say that all right we will projectize but doesn't mean that you will make the projects you will go and work with our people uh, imagine could pakistan go to britain or uk and end up at the other day uh, there was uh, an ad uh, that you can borrow up to 35 million rupees from uh, UK uh, aid uh, for uh, women entrepreneurs. Um, and this is, this is full uh, half page dawn or, or uh, business recorder advertisement. Uh, now, can we go and do this thing in, in another country? I, I don't think. Uh, uh, this is just impossible. Well, how can we allow this thing to happen? If somebody is coming and, and in the name of assistance, it has to come through the, the, the ultimate representatives of people. They cannot go and, and do work. And how have we allowed it to happen? So you look at UK and you look at different. I mean, they have tons of money and they are distributing it to their own Friends and Karandas, every damn thing under the sun, they are saying Karandas will do this survey or that census or will, will bring in those things. And this is happening. So uh, I think uh, this uh, mode, although I mean it is nothing compared to the type of flows that had come previously, uh, these are useless investments, comparative funds. Um, entrepreneur funds, SME support, partners, what others? I mean, even they go and, and do some old uh, uh, GENCOs and do their efficiency analysis, etc. What the hell? Who are you to do all those things? 
give the money to the the uh, federal government and it can work through its uh, autonomous bodies as well as provinces to uh, do rapid studies now uh, uh, i think uh, uh, if i were to uh, i mean uh, i mean nadeem says it and i i totally agree with you that we have uh, abdicated our our uh, fundamental role of uh, <clears throat> um, doing thinking at our own uh, pre-committing for 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 things you know i mean the, the, very recently uh, i'm 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 watching uh, like this pub, the 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 the, uh, the uh, power sector thing if if uh, imf world bank and adb are not there what are we going to do it do do about it we do some thinking because they are asking us and they say that all right if you don't do this thing we will not uh, uh, i mean give you this support and that support is so critical for you meaning you need uh, uh, the program and you need the program resources i mean that is really something uh, that we should be worried of and look uh, uh, i mean everybody is responsible i'm not isolating one government or another it has become a national character the national character is that we at our own uh, have stopped thinking for for ourselves and have lost the ability um, to uh, uh, i mean pre-commit to a course of action and then consistently work through that uh, pre-commitment that that ability ability uh, we kind of have have lost so uh, uh, even when it is not foreign assistance as i have explained uh, and it is more uh, uh, really uh, almost comparative i mean uh, it, largely uh, our development partners are adb world bank um, uh, imf and islamic development to some extent uh, we we uh, we are unable to discipline ourselves we are unable to uh, make commitments and stay with those so those are nadeem sahab are some of my observations that i wanted to share Thank you, Bakar Sab. Thank you very much. Coming from you, Dr. Bakar, this is extremely worrisome because, as I said, you've been on the negotiating side. You, Mashallah, led IMF missions. You've led many donor consultations. So yes, it is very worrisome that we do not have the capacity or the ability to deal with the donors, and the donors are, are really not even behaving in a responsible manner. So with that, let me come to Mr. Nasrullah, Dr. Nasrullah. Yeah, from the ADB, Doctor, you are also uh, a Pakistani. I mean, you're also in the ADB office. So help us think it through. How are we going to gain some independence, and why will the donors not work with us to help us develop some local capacity and local policy? Why are we at odds with the donors? Why do the donors want to own everything? Why can't our universities do some research? Why does it have to be the ADB or the World Bank who want to do some research? Case in point, for example, let me tell you this. I wrote a book called Looking Back, 
Pakistan in 2047. And done in 2017. The World Bank did started the project after my book was published. In fact, they came to me and said, okay, we're going to do it. But then when it came to doing the project, they wanted to compete with my book. They did not even want to cite the book. They did not even want to talk to me about the book. They went to Lums, held a conference, and even the Lums people told them, hey, where's the author of the book? And they wouldn't call me. Why do the donors want to compete with us, Doctor? Please, but I am Rasulullah sir. Alaikum, sir. And uh, um, how much time do I have? I just wanted to ask this. What do you like? Thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to thank you uh, for this opportunity. Uh, I have no. Uh, Claims to being economist. I think uh, you may have read my profile wrong. I don't have a PhD. I'm probably the least qualified person uh, uh, to be uh, uh, to be here, and uh, it's in fact quite daunting uh, to be sitting next to Doctor virtually. Uh, and it's uh, it's indeed a great honor. So uh, my uh, my take uh, on the subject is that I just uh, take a very process view of things. Uh, and as we go, I'll just like to talk about a few things that I have just learned over a period of time. And, and I've been with the government, I've been with the corporate sector, and uh, it's just a few dots that I've been able to connect. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak of that, and I may not be able to answer all of the questions. Uh, first, I would like to thank Dr. 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 Vagar has uh, given a very balanced view of, uh, uh, of, of, of how the situation is. So. Uh, <clears throat> Generally, I think the question we are discussing is uh, why has the foreign aid not not delivered on its promise? Um, it's it's a multi-dimensional uh, 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 question or a subject, uh, and, and it that tends to be unpredictable, and uh, no one can actually encompass uh, whatever it entails. Uh, it sometimes means that you know you can take a linear thinking. Uh, uh, to understand it, but but it's more than often it's it's very non-linear. So it's uh, uh, sometimes you know we have very simplistic uh, uh, assessments of things. So uh, on 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 some of the things, I think uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 the vantage point that you have uh, have on this. And from a very process standpoint, you know what I would think is you have to somehow try and unpack and decomplexify. Uh, the subject and also uh, also some of the uh, assumptions that we have around it. And uh, Dr. Fame used the word aid industry. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's it's a I don't know why why that word has been used. Industry somehow entails that there are profits to be made in it, which which uh, which which would not be true. Uh, and uh, the, he also mentioned the black box uh, of of uh, of factors and circumstances that needs to be. Uh, uh, understood a little bit better, uh, which is what uh, you know, I've also said that you need to understand this a little bit more. So on 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 some uh, it, it 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 might be a public policy issue, and and if you unpack the spectrum, uh, there are uh, different uh, uh, organizations, and I, I would call it development financing somewhere, and then it's a, maybe it's a it's a movement of goods and services from from one place to another. Uh, and then people uh, different, uh, depending on where they are on the spectrum, uh, they have different competitive advantages uh, to understand things and to deliver 
things. For example, ADB obviously has a strong competitive advantage on the transport sector, uh, and uh, which is demonstrated and does not need any uh, uh, any 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 defending, so to say. So on on, on that count, uh, uh, you know, what is it that that is uh, driving this understanding? Uh, is it, uh, you know, if you should look at project design and delivery, you know, it tends to be a story of individual brilliance at times, you know, uh, in many places, or simply a case of media jaundiceism, the way, you know, it is being, uh, uh, it is being uh, looked at many times. And social media chatter, of course, is not uh, an indictment of uh, anything, uh, so to say. So you have, it's just the chatter in the public square and people are being judgmental over it. So that's not evaluation. So independently, you know, if there is an evaluation of programs, uh, you yourself have written a book. Uh, it's a very, very nice imaginative book. Um, I'm referring to Dr. Nadeem's book. And it's, uh, it's very imaginative and it talks about, you know, how, what comes first, whether it is development or is it reform? Uh, so the, the objective is, is, is to, to, for any, uh, any financing relationship, uh, is, 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 is assumes a certain level of uh, uh, responsibility to demand on the client side. So as, as Dr. Vakar Masood said, it's no longer the kind of relationship that it used to be uh, decades ago. So once you're assuming, you know, you have a, uh, have a trajectory, so to say, from, for, for going from point X to point Z, uh, you are, you are, you are, assuming that you know you're looking for there will be a resource requirement then you know you're assuming or there has to be capability or capacity and then uh, there, there is a direction and then uh, last uh, uh, direction means your purpose uh, behind uh, uh, behind the whole thing behind the whole journey and then there is a reflection and and uh, planning that uh, comes after it uh, so that's uh, that's the journey that has assumed, and then resources. If you see, is just the initial part of it. It's just point A, where you assess your resources, and and then you look for different sources of financing, uh, and uh, if there are fiscal issues. So that's uh, that. That to me is uh, is the journey that uh, that that basically um, has to be on the table or or or, or in view for 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 a demand of resources. So going. Uh, uh, one by one, if you, uh, DFIs are also uh, uh, in a very competitive environment. You've got different players coming in, uh, AIIB also, and uh, uh, is, is an infrastructure bank. So it's, it's very, the, the environment is quite competitive. And then uh, uh, you have, as I said, client has a responsibility to the demand. And you know we can uh, talk about that later on. Uh, I'm just going through uh, some of the key points. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, foreign assistance, of course, is not just about um, uh, financial transfers. It's also about uh, knowledge, know-how, and that's where the value is because we are the kind of economy that we are these days. Uh, there's a lot of value and premium on the on the knowledge uh, uh, that <coughs> DFIs can bring to the table, uh, and simply because you know these are multilateral organizations and uh, going. Uh, you know, just talking about multilaterals a bit because multilaterals Pakistan has a claim because Pakistan is a member of these organizations. So uh, knowledge is where the real value is. How much of it is actually leveraged uh, is, is, a, is a discussion point. 
uh, and then you have uh, that's the bit on uh, on the on the on the resources right and then then the capability uh, as dr fame mentioned that you have uh, uh, a bit about you know people going abroad and 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 getting educated masters degrees and phd's and then so on and you know they have they don't have much incentive to continue so uh, <clears throat> i myself am one so but uh, but i did uh, fulfill the requirements of uh, my 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 education back then after that i joined from but from a very capacity standpoint i mean capacity is is a word that is often used uh, uh, sometimes even without actually analyzing it uh, to for me i think i i would i would really think that a very empowered bureaucracy <clears throat> and an enabled one is 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 something that can really help uh, <clears throat> implementation and execution uh, i i was reading somewhere and uh, it was uh, uh, on a magazine and they said you know the covid 19 has really exposed uh, uh, the ability uh, in many places for people to can who can just the capacity being non existent uh, in the sense that having people standing on ground and just delivering Uh, what was needed because project management tends to be very complex so from that standpoint i think all of the successful projects if you see delivered in pakistan uh, i have a nagging doubt that you'll find a civil servant there somewhere <clears throat> and then you have uh, from a capacity standpoint how do you engage the private sector that's a big question and i was looking at uh, one of the latest news and one of the ladies from i think she was from ubl and she's been appointed as deputy governor Uh, state bank <clears throat> and social media was all a buzz about her pays and benefits which wasn't much you know most people would not think uh, that they are too high but we have a certain attitude towards uh, um, this kind of news and it generates a buzz so how do we how, how do we engage the private sector how can we have uh, public private partnerships uh, which can leverage private sector capital and so on uh and and leveraging private sector capital private apologize uh, uh <clears throat> let me apologize private sector talent i think that's the key <clears throat> we have recently had uh, uh people coming into the government and then they leave uh there are many different factors around it and whether the government is able to pay them well is just one <clears throat> then you have uh, on the capacity side and that's where you know my views uh, are very strong that you need to have a strong data driven uh <clears throat> planning and execution uh for example do we know what we know or, or or do we know what we have does the government have for example in in winter this is a discussion that we keep having you know at time formally and informally uh the the, the the talent that the government has do we have an inventory of that if we wanted to have 10 project managers tomorrow do we have a project directors uh, as i said behind a successful project you'll always find a good pd uh, and and is good team <clears throat> so that's that's the capacity bit and on if you on the on the third one you know if the direction you need to have a, you know it might be a public policy issue you know uh, as as uh, as doctor was also mentioning and and prime also mentioned so it is a strategic consensus uh, uh, on 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 what's the direction Uh, uh because it sets the purpose and intent and everything flows back from there so the on on the <clears throat> and your planning and reflection 
of course, then has to be data driven. Uh, we live in an age of data. Uh, everything uh, is, 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 has to be empiricalized because that saves money and uh, that uh, promises good insights which feed into what you do next. Because it's a circle of uh, planning and execution and implementation. So what you, what you do next has to be informed by what you have learned. So learning uh, <clears throat> is a function of, uh, of, of the data and empirical evidence uh, that we have. And it's, uh, the insights would come uh, at the interface of uh, human intelligence and where the systems uh, would, which are running the data analytics for you can give you uh, <clears throat> that, that data and you can run those insights and you can make them available to people who can, uh, who can, who are into planning and who are designing projects and so on. So that, 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 that is the uh, explanation on, on the, on the, on the journey that I, I mentioned from point A to point B. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very easy for, for, uh, for uh, anyone to just uh, maybe mention PC1 issues and have you know use country systems uh, have uh, for example you know we've been saying this that we want to achieve 100% literacy since long and uh, but we haven't been able to do that uh, so that that is that policies have to be very rational and have to be well informed by data uh, and and the and the information that that you get from it <clears throat> it's very simplistic to say that you need capacity building in project management I mean, there has to be capacity on the part of people who are actually looking at the people that they need to hire. And we've got that the capacity on the, on, the, on the side of people who are assessing talent is extremely important because you, once you see a good thing, you should know that it's a good thing. So that's also very, very important. So there then question of best practices and the DFIs are very good at uh, uh, bringing in uh, best practices and, and and lessons learned from other markets. Obviously, we need to see if a project uh, or a concept has done very well around the world in other countries, in comparable countries. I mean, China is also a recipient of uh, uh, the aid, so it's uh, or, or financing. So so it's it's a uh, and one can mention other countries also. You know, Israel and Egypt also. So that there are different case studies. So uh, some of these one can always mention and harmonization on federal, federal and provincial systems and so on. This is again a systems issue and a process issue and that can always be improved. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll probably stop here uh, with, a, um, <clears throat> with just an example because there is a presidential hackathon that takes place in Taiwan uh, every year and it took place in 2019. I, I'm thinking this year it might it might be delayed or they may do it virtually. So what, you, what they do is they, they run a hackathon uh, just to bring open data, innovative data users, uh, and they bring the problems of national development and social needs to that hackathon to, 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 to collectivize the wisdom and experts from across the government industry, private sector, and civil society. So that means that they, essentially what they're doing is, and they're, they're hacking the public policy uh, they, they are bringing technology and the human intelligence together in a room uh, to, to, to assess problems uh, and come up with interesting solutions. And that so much wisdom in the room and data, I think is bound to come up uh, with something rather than hitting a, a ball. So, uh, and then, then it also brings ownership to the whole thing uh, down the line. Uh, how much public policy evaluations we have in this country is a, is also a question that I would like to 
ask you know generally if anyone can answer that so that's i think objective basis of actually uh, bringing views to the table is very very important and then on the hackathon what they do is that they have their can it, it's supported by the president's office and at the highest level of support so that's that's how they do it maybe they are a small country they are able to do it uh, but it's uh, it's a uh, uh, it's an interesting case study so i'll just let that sink in for now and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, closing remarks and in between if there are questions uh, we'll be very happy to address some of the questions that i uh, based on what i've said thank you Thank you, Nasrul Milana Sab. It was very good. I think you made a good um, analysis. Uh, but the issue of capacity, I mean, uh, Bakar, Dr. Bakar, you also raised that. Nasrul Milana also raises that. 75 years later, 200 universities in Bakar Sab, we still don't have capacity. What, what is wrong? Where has capacity fallen? And World Bank has given HEC many good evaluations. So we must be doing something right. There are no evaluations, but there are evaluations. The World Bank gives HEC a great evaluation, gives BISP a great evaluation, but where is our capacity then, Vakar sir? <coughs> Dr. Vakar, mic mute, Karna. mic unmute. Uh, Nadeem, I was saying that we have to look at a much broader uh, perspective. Uh, the, the period that I noted for a transformation, which is the post-1989, unfortunately happened to be uh, a period in which uh, business and politics uh, mixed up uh, big time. And uh, our values, so to say, uh, then started uh, deteriorating. And uh, the early phase, well, you know, you can say that it was there um, all along. But I feel that the role of business in politics was never like it started to be uh, back in, uh, in that arena. Uh, there was a break during Musharraf's time. Uh, but there also, eventually, businesses uh, had a, and many will say that this was very positive, but mixing government and, and politics is always an extremely risky business. And uh, so what has happened uh, that uh, if, if business is deciding uh, key policies sitting in ECC, you have sat there um, with us, both of us have, have, have sat together, and uh, you have seen if uh, a policy on sugar is formulated or wheat is formulated. I mean, the very people who will go out and do those things, uh, even when some people would recuse themselves from sitting there, but you know, their 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 very presence all around uh, uh, would mean that. Uh, 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 decisions uh, will be taken by people uh, with conflicted interests. So uh, then uh, these services, uh, I mean, uh, particularly I think PPP and, and uh, PMLN uh, and to a large extent Q also, 
uh, I was just reading uh, a post from a service group where they said that uh, all the bureaucracy uh, was eventually uh, uh, converted into um, groups uh, having interests or loyalties with one set of uh, political party or political masters than uh, other. So merit started being compromised. And the civil servants who are in at least law supposed to be um, uh, implementing policies, uh, they, they, uh, they owed their presence in an important job to the continued uh, liking by uh, the uh, political masters. Uh, and uh, it's not that they were cited of uh, honesty, integrity. Their interest may have also in that direction. So they may have mixed up with them. And the, the result is that there is um, no merit that is left in the system. And uh, Nadim, this is easier said than understood and um, uh, cured. Well, I mean, nations, uh, uh, if you study uh, how great nations have failed, they have primarily failed. I mean, I, I was uh, reading the history of uh, Mamluks and the Mamluks uh, were, were uh, uh, great masters. So long as their academies were producing the uh, uh, administrators and warriors uh, completely on the basis of merit. And uh, in the beginning of the, the uh, Ottoman Empire, this is what was, so of the reasons of uh, Ottoman uh, demise, one was that the academies were uh, tempered with, the selection process was tempered with, and uh, people were not selected on the basis of merit. And uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I need not add more, Nadim, to, to this uh, malice that continues to uh, afflict our, uh, I mean, social body, societal body, our national body. Great, great. Thank you. Let me bring in another couple of people who might shed some light on it. Haroon Sharif, who has some experience of donor agencies, has worked with them a lot since World Bank, DFID, etc., etc. He wanted to give some perspectives. Haroon Saab, after that, I'll call Sami Al-Taf, who's also written a book on those things. Haroon, are you there? Gee, I'm there and I think unmuted. Okay, good. Go ahead. It's a very, very interesting debate. Once again, congratulations to Pied and you for the leadership role and uh, the speakers who have given different angles. I will be brief, uh, but I have some experience of doing this business from both sides. I will start with two uh, uh, small uh, 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 discussions I have had. So one was a discussion several years back uh, with my professor, uh, Magnet Desai at London School of Economics, uh, when I was talking to him that what kind of career I should choose and obviously being a student of development and economics, 
So I said, how about joining, you know, a, a multilateral organizations? So he smiled and he basically said that the kind of overheads these guys basically waste, uh, 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 if you just throw that money through a helicopter, uh, you will be able to reduce poverty. Now, at that point in time, uh, I did not understand. So I think one of the areas which needs to be highlighted is the cost, not only transaction cost, but the financial cost of delivering development loans and grants. It is huge, uh, uh, you know, and still it's very much colonial uh, mindset where foreign consultants are paid uh, three times more than local consultants. That answers, Nadeem, uh, your question that why local capacity is not being built, because obviously it's the, in the case of grant, it's taxpayers' money of a government and they have to create jobs for their people. Right. Second is actually the local uh, side of it, and that's the current political regime before they came into power. And they had, uh, you know, a similar session where I was invited. Uh, and both our current prime minister and the former finance minister were part of that session. And they asked me this question that, you know, why international organizations uh, give money for things like governance, for things like nutrition, for things like, you know, social sector development, uh, particularly the multilateral banks. And they wanted to understand that. And at that point in time, uh, they were running one province and their consensus was that they should only borrow money uh, for the projects which have commercial returns to pay back. And that is a point I'm trying to link with what uh, uh, Dr. Vakar Masood was saying, the shift of donors uh, uh, towards policy lending. So what happens is that in policy lending is a lot more easier than targeted sector or project financing, uh, uh, because you can give large sums in the budget of the government and it yields huge results in terms of influence, in terms of tinkering with policy uh, in terms of actually, you know, winning lots of commercial contracts for their people. So the, the, this is where the thinking of the recipient country uh, uh, comes in. Uh, several countries basically don't get into policy lending because policy is something which national government should drive to answer Nadeemul Haq's early question that why do donors do it? If you take the policy lending out of the equation, uh, then donors have, will have much little space to actually engage on policy. The ironic part is that donors engage with the policy, but under their system, they don't want to take any responsibility uh, uh, of that engagement if that policy fails. Uh, and I give you an example, some 20, 22 years back, I, I was leading one of the largest capital market development program in Securities and Exchange Commission. So I was, you know, ticking all the boxes for Asian Development Bank and all my colleagues who from ADB, uh, 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 they were getting their promotions. But at the end of the day, there's no evaluation that, you know, uh, did we really manage to uh, make a capital market which is fulfilling the needs of the country and are they accountable or not? So accountability is a serious question, particularly in the multilateral banks, where the heads of these banks are not appointed on merit. 
So how can you actually preach accountability and governance to a country where, as a matter of fact, you are appointed based on a lobby of your sponsors and you are you know, expected to promote uh, certain uh, interests of those countries? I would also like to comment on the missing nexus which I saw uh, 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 between the research, some of the very good research which international organizations do, and the people which we call the task leads who are responsible for disbursing money. Actually, there is a very clear disconnect within the organization uh, 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 to use the research which they do. They are only there, you know, promotion depends on disbursements. So there, there is a very, very you know, clear conflict of interest within the organizations there. Now that the landscape is changing and we are getting a lot more regional institutions coming into play and bilateral countries, I will make only two comments which are linked to Pakistan. Uh, the first of all is that Pakistan needs to very carefully think about a model of external financing. Uh, because uh, uh, it is not only the capacity, it's a political economy question. Uh, we like to, uh, you know, give space to others to play in our, our turf. We need to take ownership of this whole aid uh, business and development assistance business, whether it is Western or it is China. Or re recently, I was part of those negotiations uh, with the Middle Eastern countries where we went for some injection of capital, which you saw two days back, Pakistan had to repay a billion dollars to Saudi Arabia. There is a price for taking money for your budget support. And that I kept on advocating, whether it is China, whether it is Saudi Arabia, whether it is Qatar, whether it is UAE, whoever puts in money in your budget, uh, Pakistan has been a proxy country for huge geopolitical alignments and they will ask for it at the right time. It is being naive that we think that, you know, people are very friendly and they are giving you these Eid gifts or something. So we, we haven't really thought through that the goodies we are asking for short-term fixes, the political cost of these goodies could be so high that, you know, which could, be, which could outweigh the money we borrow from multilateral institutions as a matter of fact. So I think that I actually worry about, you know, uh, our thinking of just taking money. And what happened was that some of these countries I'm still engaged with, having left the cabinet, uh, uh, they now really think that Pakistan only wanted that money rather than looking at a meaningful economic partnership because we never followed up on the other front. We got the money, we came back. So as a matter of fact, there's a major uh, uh, loss of face on Pakistan. In China, I, am, I was the lead on industrial cooperation on CPEC. I'm still advising China through Beijing University and NDRC. Uh, there is a very profound change happening in China uh, uh, towards financing uh, bilateral partners. And I think there will be a lot more private sector banking role in future after the COVID-19 and the shrinking of Chinese economy. So we got to see very clearly a fiscal forecasting model for Pakistan before getting into, I very clearly see a trend towards uh, fast tracking infrastructure projects under CPEC, but we do not have a model of macro fiscal forecasting to deal with those kind of inflows. So in summary, what I would say is that I have never seen a country growing on external flows. 
or external ideas. And that is something Pakistani politicians have to understand. That is something Pakistani bureaucrats have to understand. What happens is that we have opened up so much space that all kind of people, it actually is scary when I see the quality of advice which is given often uh, to Pakistan. And something was mentioned about the transaction cost. I wouldn't name one of my friend who is now vice president in a multilateral bank. He called me that he was in Pakistan and he wanted to see the prime minister. So I asked him that, why do you want to see the prime minister? So he thought for a while and he said, I'm in Pakistan. I think I should call on the prime minister. So I said, is, is there something important you need to talk to him? What would you offer on table other than a cup of tea? Uh, he thought for a while, but he said, there's a tradition that I should meet the prime minister. So I will rest my case here. And that gentleman is not too happy with me that I did not send a message to the prime minister. Uh, so all I'm trying to say is that in the past we have been, and in, even myself, I was a senior official, you know, in bilateral and multilateral system. But being a Pakistani, I had an edge that I had, you know, social access to people. But when I worked in India, I worked in, you know, Dhaka, I worked in 16 countries, even Central Asian countries don't open up policy space to the tune, which we have done. And I think a lot to do here is with the colonial mindset that we really think that somebody, uh, you know, uh, with a white skin, he comes here or she comes here and they will start advising us on anything. Final comment, what Dr. Vakar Masood mentioned about this company called Karandas. I would only raise two questions. Uh, it is like a private equity fund. And I recently looked at its books because uh, I was the one who actually gave this idea to Commonwealth Development Corporation to set up an equity fund in Pakistan. Uh, there was a very clear, you know, market failure uh, in Pakistan for, you know, SMEs kind of financing. My question to my colleagues in the government and donors is that why a financial institution which has a balance sheet of 13, almost 13 billion rupees now of private equities, why it is being run uh, in an unregulated NGO space? I would rest the case if you open up their website and look at their board members and their board members, some of them uh, actually are sitting in your cabinet. So my point here is that come, we open up space ourselves, an informal sector of a foreign funded organization. So it is the fault lies with us that where is our regulatory capacity? Why have we permitted? Would you permit another NGO to do a business of 13 billion rupees of financial sector? interventions and crowd out the market. So question lies with Pakistan, not it's a private equity fund, it's not an aid agency, but it needs to be regulated. So these are few thoughts. I tried a lot, Nadeem, uh, to put in, you know, Pakistani outfits in front when I was on the other side. And certain, some examples are Punjab Skills Development Fund I created through aid, then government took over. IGC, uh, your favorite institution, uh, what I would like to say is that when it was being created with Masood Ahmed and Andrew Steers and myself and others, the idea was not that this institution gets captured by a few in private space and become a consulting house. The idea was that generate an institution in Lums in Pakistan, which provides quality advice to the government. So the question is that government never basically used that thing and opened up space that it got captured. And I can go on and on. I tried several of these initiatives. 
where private institution in Pakistan could actually deliver quality advice rather than the consultants and contractors who are just business people there to make money. So that's the landscape, but I have three suggestions to close. Number one, Pakistan should very seriously review our policy of policy lending uh, from international organizations. We need to very seriously think the sectors which required ideas and money uh, from concessional lending and grants. Grants are dying anyways. It will be concessional lending in future. We need to understand the influencing part of this business, which we don't get it. And also look at the commercial enterprise, which is linked to this whole business of grants and you know loans. Uh, 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 if you come to think of it, multilaterals actually give the largest loans for commercial enterprise and dams and roads and contracting. So we need to see that, you know, how that thing is helping, you know, whom. And that is where I rest my case. I think the ball is in Pakistan's court that how we want to use these institutions uh, uh, prudently and how, what are the areas which should have a red line and what are the areas and technical assistance should stop, frankly speaking. I would be very, very candid here that, you know, I have been, you know, part of the crime giving large sums of technical assistance. It has negative returns. So I will stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harun, and thank you for doing a mea culpa. You're absolutely right. You're responsible for much as I keep reminding you. You not only set up Karandas, you also put up a housing unit in the central bank where central bank has nothing to do with housing. You also put up a small and medium unit in the central bank. Whereas okay, the central bank we can have separate discussion. Go on. <laughs> so my point is that donors can put up units wherever they like without any reason. Central bank, the IMF says, needs an independence law. And we give them an independence law, and then Central Bank wants to become the planning commission. We don't even notice it. At the same time, things like PPF have been around for 50 years, and I don't know what they're doing, because quite frankly, they have a lot of money, but nothing seems to happen. So I'll leave it there. Let's go on. Samia Altaf has written a book called So Much Aid, So Little Development. So Samia, why do you think there is a problem? Or is there no problem? Am I wrong? You are, you are absolutely right, Nadeem. There are many, many problems. And actually, you know, your panelists have uh, done a very good job of uh, looking at different aspects of it. My very special thanks go to uh, Mr. Fahim Khan, who has really pulled together all the numbers and all the, all the data and presented it in a very, very succinct fashion. And of course, li listening to uh, uh, Mr. Wakar Masood is all, always a, a, is a privilege, very rare privilege. Uh, and thanks also to Mr. Nasir Mia and Mr. Harun Sharif. I have a, a couple of comments about each of the panelists' uh, presentation. And then I have a question I guess for everybody and for you, you know, people who have been uh, involved with the government for a long time. My comments are that, uh, uh, you know, there seems to be a little bit of a little bit of a bafflement about how is it possible that the donors, uh, you know, can get away with doing this, that and the other. And of course, how is it possible that they bring all these missions and how is it possible that, you know, they, they they uh, uh, bring in their own people for technical assistance, whereas we have in the country all these institutions and of course, you know, people who can provide technical assistance. 
I mean, it is possible because we make it possible. To my understanding, uh, the uh, bilateral assistance comes into the country uh, based on a strategic agreement that the EAD uh, signs with the with the uh, donor agency to say yes, we will allow you to come in, and we will allow your partners to come in, and to do this work for us. And uh, so they sign that agreement. So they know within that within the within the in USAID it's 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 called a strategic grant plan uh, agreement. Within that agreement. The donor agency actually, uh, according to its regulations, lays out that you know a certain percentage of the grant will go back as as uh, technical assistance to its own uh, contractors because that is part of their regulation, because it is uh, taxpayers' money. So any business just that is generated from U.S. taxpayers' money, the first dibs rests with U.S. citizens. So that is part of the regulation, and the government agrees on that. When you sign that agreement, you agree on that. Uh, so they are promoting their own people, so to speak, because that is that is part of their strategic agreement. Uh, number two, you know, we when we say how can we allow them to make these projects and how can we allow them to to uh, you know make these decisions. Again, it seems to me a little bit surprising that, again, we have allowed them, the government of Pakistan has allowed them to do all of that, because you recall that, uh, uh, and I recall very clearly, I was working with USAID uh, when USAID also, for the first time, bypassed the government and started to work directly with local NGOs. And that opened the floodgates for DFID and for Japanese, for everybody to start working with local NGOs. That happened, I think, in 2003 or 2004. And the first NGO that got, I think, 5 million or 6 million to do uh, work in education was an NGO that was owned jointly by the then minister, I think, or member of the National Assembly, Daniel Laziz, and his wife. And that was a permission granted by the government. It was a permission granted by EAD that USAID and the other donors could work directly with the with the NGOs. So I, you know, I just feel, and I think that uh, uh, Mr. Sharif kind of summed it up very well when he said that the the fault lies with us and not not uh, in the donors. So and and uh, and uh, um, you know the the comment that uh, Mr. Mia made. I find that uh, also a little bit perplexing that the system is too large to uh, to understand it and, and encompass it fully and to understand it and do something about it. I disagree with that. I mean, what is the job of the government if not that? That to understand what the what the uh, you know the development assistance is and how to bring it bring it uh, about in such a fashion that it is to the benefit of the country and as. Mr. Mr. Mia said very rightly that there are examples of other countries, for example, you take Malaysia or South Korea, who, and even China itself that has used donor assistance or development assistance very, very effectively. And there are very clear indicators as to why they have been able to use it effectively and why we haven't been able to use it effectively. So I think you know, to kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, be overwhelmed by this, that you know the system is too complex and the system is too large and there are too many players and there are too many pieces. I think that that is, that is uh, not 
not uh, correct. I think that we really need to understand the system. It is not too large. It is not too complex. It is. It has many pieces. It is large. It is complex. But that is exactly the job of the government representatives to do that. I quite agree with the, with the, uh, Mr. Sharif that uh, you know the the the. Uh, you know, human beings are, are the ones who are within these large organizations and uh, who manage them on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, if you read my book, my book is, you know, I repeat this again and again, that their personal incentives are very, very critical in terms of what decisions they make on a daily basis. And Mr. Sharif has also mentioned that, that, you know, most of these people who are part of the mid-level donor management, World Bank or USAID or DFID, you know, most of these people are, are, uh, are evaluated on the basis of the fact that they were able to uh, disperse the money within Pakistan that they brought in there, and they were able to do it in a, in a particular time frame. And that time frame basically uh, is within the uh, fiscal year of the donor country. You know, when I was working with uh, managing USAID's money, the assistance to government of Pakistan, you know, our bugaboo basically was this, that, oh, the pipeline is bulging and the pipeline has to be emptied and the pipeline, and, you know, no matter how much you reassured them and said, okay, you know, we will, we will empty out the pipeline, but no, you know, it had to be emptied out at a particular rate and during a particular time period. So yes, that is what these managers, mid-level managers are evaluated on. And so that is what they do. The incentives of the government officials are also uh, aligned in such a fashion that, you know, they, it is also to their benefit to, you know, I use the word kind of pretend with a little, little bit tongue, tongue in cheek, and not entirely tongue in cheek, but to pretend that, you know, uh, uh, you, know, you, you, know, you know, this is fine and this is okay, or we are helpless, or hum se to kush ho nahi sakta. You know, I just, I, I just feel that if, if, uh, if uh, uh, the government wants to build its capacity, it has the authority to do so. Let me give you a little story to illustrate that. You know, uh, when USAID wanted, was offering um, uh, assistance for a study tour to government, senior government officials uh, to uh, manage an HIV AIDS program that we were funding. We were giving, I think, 12 million or $15 million for that. And it had funding also for six government, senior government officials to travel to God knows Finland or someplace or to Harvard or someplace for three months for a study tour. And I held on to the money because I was the one making the decision at that time. I held on to the money and I said that we will, we will, we will um, fund this trip only if the government promises us that once these officers come back, they will stay in the Department of Health project management units, in the HIV project management units, at least for a year. Because on record, I could see that almost 60% of them were due for a promotion or were due to leave. I mean, how is it, how difficult it is for the government to take, to, to change the regulation and say, yes, we will do that. Why would, uh, and the government, you know, I don't want to name the officials, the officials would come back and say that, you know, this can't be done because it's a question of their career. These are, you know, government officials, they are, they are DMG group or whatever, uh, whatever that is. So they will move on as it is. But you couldn't send anybody else either because these were the people who were the heads of heads of the unit. So I bring this back again to say that you know. Yeah, finish so. 
Please, I'm just going to finish. So my question is, so these are, these are again, you know, things that everybody knows. My question is that all of these regulations, the government of Pakistan makes, all of the strategic grant agreements that it signs, it, the government signs, EAD signs. So how difficult it is for them to undo those or how difficult it is for them to come up with new regulations? So that is the question I leave the, leave the uh, uh, forum for. Good. Much. Two quick questions. I'll go to the panelists. Shahid Wahid Saab, quickly. Bolie. My name is Shahid Wahid and I'm a research scholar from Applied Economic Research Center. Sir, my question is about the aid. Uh, those aid which is given only for enhancing export of developing countries. I worked on this topic in the context of Pakistan but find very different results, different results from different sectors. In those sectors where donor countries have more benefits, they give aid to those sectors. In, in the form of tired aid, which decrease our export to those donor countries and increase import from those donor countries. Once import increase or our export on countries, my question is from Dr. Wakar Ahmed that is, is, is it possible to stop this tired aid or convert okay. this tired aid to untied aid without okay. condition? Thank Great. you. Sir, on Zamani, last question. Comment, Goliath. Sir, are you there? Hello, sir. Yes, sir. Sir, my name is Sarah. I am a research scholar at Applied Economics Research Center. Sir, I would like to say that if you look, look at the third world countries, all of them have one thing in common, and that is foreign aid. But if you look at who is actually solving the issues in the society, it is not the government or the aid. For example, Karachi had this transportation issue since decades, but now Uber, Kareem, and these different uh, innovative ideas, they are solving the transportation issues. So basically, it's the technology and innovative business models which are saving the day. So why don't donors sir, push the creation of these practical innovative ideas if they have so much money and influence instead of giving food and educational books? Sir? And sir, if I, I might get the answer that uh, they do, like the FID had given this amount of money to State Bank for entrepreneurship. So my own father, I come from a small scale farming family and he has this excellent working business model, something like FinTech and not something as ineffective as microfinance. So uh, after staying five days for five years, the money staying five years for State Bank, it just went to Karandas and he just could not access it. I would want comment on this, sir. Thank you. That's Harun Sharif, so don't worry. Okay, Ji, let's go to the panelists. Vakar Masood, sir, if you're still there with us, you can, your last words, but before you do that, I'd also like to ask you a question. What does EAD do? Does EAD have control over the aid process or not? And secondly, should the EAD be in charge of aid or should it be planning? Or is there a dichotomy in our system that the planners are doing something and foreign aid is doing something else? So Vakar, sir, over to you. Your last comments on everything. Thank you, Nadeem. Uh, you know, uh, look, an individual division uh, does not have the larger authority to make uh, policy decisions uh, at its own. Uh, and uh, when there is uh, a clear uh, conflict uh, with the uh, 
other country uh, uh, development partner, uh, you then are uh, kind of stuck. Uh, they had a deliberate policy that they will not give the money um, uh, through uh, the government. And uh, despite having several uh, serious conversation with US authorities, uh, it turned out that uh, they in turn had uh, a significant influence uh, of the Congress, uh, which kind of forced them, or they used to, I mean, a combination of a poli and an agenda. The agenda was uh, that, uh, I mean, they wanted to use the money to have access uh, to Pakistan society and uh, do uh, things uh, their way through their choice uh, consultants and, and uh, distribute money amongst people who they feel will be uh, kind of, uh, uh, I mean, uh, sort of uh, helpful to them in return on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I mean, I think there is no, you cannot take exception to uh, a development partner's desire that it's contributions should be appreciated in the in in the country but it is the via media i mean should it through the government or through their own chosen uh, local uh, residents and i think no government should allow that uh, anybody has the permission as samia is saying uh, frankly i mean this was uh, a very very um, uh, important contention and, and differences of opinion. Uh, but uh, I mean, whoever was in EAD, I partly was there. I could not have taken this matter. Uh, I mean, I could have brought it to the attention of our principals, but they were the final. I mean, the idea, <clears throat> also let me share. When Mr. Bush announced a policy of supporting uh, Musharraf, after his February 2002 20, uh, visit, uh, they announced $3 billion paid uh, uh, over uh, a five-year period. And they said 50% it would be military, 50% economy. I mean, Musharraf Saab said that I don't need that any, any of those uh, 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 I mean, uh, military thing. All of it has to go for economic and social sectors. But he was bluntly told that no, I mean, it would be like this. So this is how um, it is, it is uh, supported. So he could not have in return told them that, look, okay, so keep your money to yourself and we'll live without it. Some other comments have come, and uh, frankly, um, I mean, we are we are a country which is, uh, in a way, uh, after seventy three years, continues to search for its moorings. Uh, some nationalistic uh, uh, point of view, uh, some ideological thing, whatever you want to say, there is. I mean a national pride in doing some things. Uh, I mean, we, we are not very committed to some national values and very justifiably so because 
we have been consistently disappointed by our political leaders. Now, <clears throat> uh, I think this partly Nadim answers uh, the question of the gentleman from AERC uh, about tied and untied thing. Uh, there is there is tied. If there is, <laughs> there is nothing which is untied. And uh, again, one of the comments has already been made. Uh, I mean, these are our own choices. These are all our own choices. We are uh, making these decisions. We go for for uh, seeking such assistance, and it's all because of our own failure. And we, we continue to pay price. So this is a spiral. Uh, somebody uh, sometime may, may say that it is not acceptable and, uh, and break the chains. So uh, let's hope <laughs> for a uh, savior in that sense until then. Thank you, Nadeem. Khudafiz. Thank you. Very kind of you to join us. Thank you. Nasr Saab, can I impose on you. You are an ex-civil servant who went to, the, um, to ADB. And lots of young civil servants are doing it. And I think ADB has more economists than the PAED. World Bank has certainly more economists than the PAED. And certainly more than the, World, than the Planning Commission, Ministry of Finance, and the Commerce put together. Now, Sir Saab, how would you comment on this? And the second thing that's also very important is, which somebody else has also raised, that local consultants are paid half the rate that foreign consultants are. This uh, discrimination takes place against us in our own country. Nasir Saab. Uh, thank you, Dr. Saab. Uh, it was uh, very interesting to uh, listen to the views and uh, particularly Dr. Samia. I enjoyed uh, her feedback. Uh, Dr. Saab always has a pleasure whenever he's speaking. It's always great to listen to him. Uh, uh, some of the policies, I don't have good information. Uh, uh, I'm sure there is a profile rating, uh, the, the last question that you uh, mentioned, but I can also show you examples of local consultants who are being paid very, very well. So uh, that's, uh, but that, uh, if, if you like, we can discuss it offline also. Okay. Uh, but generally, uh, if you, uh, I, I take it that, I, that these are my concluding comments, Dr. Sure. Is it so? so uh, it's it's uh, what I normally you know what I do is what I, I would take a very that's what I normally do I would take a very hand lens razor uh, uh, view of things uh, you know sometimes whatever because as Goethe said you know you can have a uh, you can attribute many things to simple misunderstanding and inability to understand things rather than attributing you know motives uh, which are uh, uh, not so uh, clear or let's say if you go by uh, social media insinuations, malicious or wicked, which it, uh, which may not be the case. Uh, but uh, by interesting point that Samia, Dr. Samia made that it's uh, on decision making, and I I will go back to the journey that I mentioned. Uh, data informed intelligence and insights can improve decision making, and that's the that's the thing that I will continuously talk about. You know, as much as I'm able to, uh, because essentially. I mean, you need to have a look at because you you will have unpacked uh, or uncomplexized uh, the question of uh, development assistance or its outcomes if you have unpacked uh, the public policy formulation process. So uh, partly that would answer a lot of questions that we have uh, we have uh, we have had 
or we have discussed today. So that the public in, uh, policy policy process has to uh, be more streamlined, and then you can trust the process to to deliver. Uh, and this is this works for everything. Uh, for example, you can talk about civil service reforms. You said I was an ex civil servant. I'm happy to be. Uh, civil service uh, has given me a lot. I've learned a lot. Uh, but then I did not join ADB straight off uh, from uh, civil service. I, I went on to work with the corporate sector and I worked with very good names, very good tech companies. And that has added to what I know. And uh, it's a pleasure to actually look at things and be able to connect those dots. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, I think the reliance on data can improve uh, the situation you are planning before you start going into a resource assessment, you know, fiscal assessment of things. If you have a if you have a streamlined public policy uh, process that relies on empirical evidence, and informs priority that set the direction, uh, and, and and that also entails broad-based consultation, and that is always a challenge. You know, whenever we have you know, ADB does country diagnostic studies, for example, and it's very uh, it's very difficult to get the right people in the room at times uh, to actually come and at the table and contribute. That that's the most challenge. That's the biggest challenge I I have noticed. Uh, so the data allows you to, uh, you know, plan all the four steps on, on that journey from, from resources uh, to capacity to direction and reflection. Reflection is very, very important. I'll just quote a, a, an interesting story from the past in the, in the Olympics of the 2000, the British rowing team and eight gentlemen in the rowing team, uh, they decided that they're going to adopt a say, simple approach. If they were to win the rowing race, uh, they said, you know, every, they set up a razor of sorts. They said, you know, if uh, uh, whatever we do, we have to measure it against just one simple principle. And they called it, you know, in quote unquote, they said, will it make the boat go faster? So everything, whether they want to go to shopping or they want to go to the pub, no, will it make the boat go faster? No, they decided that in 1998 and lo and behold, they won it in 2000 in Sydney. Uh, that's that's something very very. They just did it in two years, but they never won before. So that's uh, that's the kind of uh, you know missionary understanding that. Uh, and then Dr. Samia mentioned it very very well. And I this is the uh, this is the realization reflection that actually all stakeholders need to take uh, uh, to actually unpack it and understand it a little bit more. So uh, whatever happens, you know, some of the critical things that you. Uh, easy or whatever, you know, it's a, it's a cliched thing to call these uh, low-hanging fruits. But everything that comes in in foreign currency is a requirement, as you will understand. I'm not an economist, uh, but that's my understanding. You understand uh, that, you know, you can't, for example, build a dam. Say, for example, crowdsourcing is a great thing. I'm a fan of that, you know. It, it's We should crowdsource many things, you know, not just money. We should crowdsource intelligence and opinion also. Uh, and uh, and that's a, that's a great thing to do, uh, but there is a foreign currency element in it. So it, you you have to you have to see. I mean, that's the razor that that one can have is if, if it is improving domestic productivity, and infrastructure does that, energy does that. So you have it's only a question of prioritizing these things and enabling the capacity on behalf of for the people, for the organizations, and the institutions uh, to actually absorb that and deliver it and get the economic returns, not just the financial returns, but economic returns out of that investment. I think that's a responsibility consci consciously that everybody needs to understand. And I assure you, uh, we take these things very seriously, you know, where I work. 
So, uh, and then you have ease of doing business, as you very rightly mentioned, that that's a regulatory apparatus that needs to actually establish and let these projects and the project delivery units uh, to move forward and deliver the projects. Uh, project management also, you know, that that's the, again, the capacities, I, I will not talk about much about it, but then, you know, we have good examples also in Nadra, I always like to talk about motorway police, they set up, they're the same people, uh, but they set up uh, the processes and they're doing very, very, very fine, mashallah. Uh, and on the, on the, uh, lastly, again, going back to the same uh, subject that's very close to my heart, we need to invest in learning. And that I, I believe it will connect with what you have been saying and what you've written in your book, uh, that, you know, it has to come from local research, uh, that they have a responsibility also to come up with empirical information to enable that decision making that builds the capacity. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, it is uh, people who actually carry these projects forward. The rest of the team can also can, can only contribute. So we look for the competitive advantage and uh, agriculture might be uh, the easiest uh, low-hanging fruit. Uh, in Israel, for example, there are 70 companies which are making tools for, you know, drones analyzing, monitoring and automating agriculture, digitizing agriculture. Uh, it's, it's, I think I take pleasure in informing the house that uh, Currently, we are working on on a, on a digital agriculture concept in Punjab, and we have and that we have excellent set of projects in Punjab in the irrigation uh, irrigation area. So it's it's a question of looking for that competitive advantage. Maybe we need to invest in TVET also that supports the agriculture sector. So that also is something that, that helps improving local productivity and uh, come coming to a situation where you know you are exporting these things and and and. And there is a steady supply of foreign currency exchange. So it's all about, you know, sitting down and, you know, unpacking the whole thing, unpacking the public policy formulation process, prioritizing, thinking, reflecting, but aiming at one thing, which is, which is, which is, again, I'll refer to your book and what the World Bank actually, uh, as you said, it may have taken the concept, is actually how do we enable the, the country to evolve for the long term? You know, I call it long term evolution. You, what is on the horizon? What is it that we need to look for? I mean, that's a, that's an endeavor and hope, uh, if I may say so. So that this is where I'll I'll I'll, I'll probably uh, conclude this. Uh, that, that that that's where I I feel everything that that you know in this chain actually it will benefit from investment in data and learning, and and processizing uh, the whole thing. If you if you if you processize uh, and you break it down into simpler things. Uh, you you understand it better. That's what I do, and that's my learning. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nasir Sahib. Very kind of you. Um, I think you raised some very interesting points that we need data, reflection, prioritization, and um, you know, um, learning, right? And maximizing our rates of return. As far as I can see, all those things require research. All those things require thinking. And we are a country that has outsourced our thinking and our best people to donors. Would you run your household by running, letting everybody, somebody else take all your decisions? This is what Pakistan has done. We have outsourced our thinking. And PID, which is supposed to be a premier think tank in Pakistan, has been demolished in the process. PID used to be a leading think tank in the developing world. Ever since donors have come up, this is a study that now Fahim Jangir, I'll ask him to do now, how PID and our university has been decimated by the donors. And to make that point, let me tell you, Nasir Sahib, please go tell the donors. Today, not a single donor agency 
In fact, we do so many webinars, no, no agency comes to listen to us. Where do they learn? Learn? How do they learn? Fahim, can you comment on that? Are the donors, they tell us to learn, are they a learning organization? Can they learn without listening to people like us? Or are they saying data only exists outside us? We are not a part of the data. I find that very strange. So go ahead. Uh, Fahim Saab, your turn. I think Dr. Nadeem, uh, with all these discussions, uh, if we are having is, there is one important thing which we need to understand and that is the interdependence. Uh, the inter interdependence of the government of Pakistan on donors and on their resources. And at the same time, the interdependence and dependence of donors uh, and their interest to operate in Pakistan. So that is very important to understand. If you look at the resources uh, which uh, government or the donors, uh, the development partners carry, one of the resource which is very important is the knowledge resource they manage. The World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the DFID, USAID, they uh, consciously, uh, with all the effort and funds, they manage, they fund, they invest, and they conduct uh, research to uh, manage their own resource, their own knowledge resource, their own evidence-based, uh, you know, uh, things so that they can influence uh, the government policies while presenting their uh, research conducted perhaps in other country or something. So you are right in a, in a way that uh, they uh, do not always look for uh, uh, local consultants to conduct a research, but uh, as Nasser was mentioning, there are uh, not many, but few examples where Consultants are actually engaged with, with the donors and they are conducting studies, but I completely agree uh, uh, They perhaps do not engage uh, the lo local think tanks uh, Especially think tank like PIED uh, to conduct studies for them. Uh, there is uh, like uh, Dr. Samuel Taf was mentioning there is a strategic uh, agreement uh, whenever they have grant element that certain amount of money, that certain amount of grant will go back to their country. And that includes the tie date, which includes the, any equipment you need or any consultant you need or something. So that's the, basically the complexity we are talking about uh, uh, this. And uh, yes, we can talk about it. We can pressurize them. We can uh, reject their studies. We can reject their findings and we can uh, try to uh, convince them to conduct uh, local studies here but that's more debatable. That's not something like we can just say they would uh, agree to it. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to actually uh, convince them uh, uh, to uh, not bringing their own uh, consultants to Pakistan and give that funds and money to uh, consultants and researchers uh, in Pakistan, which we have. Uh, so yes, uh, I was saying we have requirements, we have dependents and uh, they have interest, uh, but what I, uh, the point I would like to make here is at the, it's already like two hours that uh, there is no need to kill each other. Uh, the government and the development partners both. Uh, I think we need to learn to survive together, to live together, to flourish together, to get benefit from each other, to get benefit from their presence. Uh, 
so it is very important uh, to understand this and for that we need to understand the complexities as nasser also was saying and i was saying that we need to understand the policy processes we need to understand the constraints and we need to come up with a more uh, you know uh, a clear engagement strategy that how to go along uh, we should stop taking dictation from the donors we should stop listening and implementing their projects which are mostly not relevant on the ground uh, we should uh, build our own capacity we should build our own uh, cadre of specialist in every ministry and we should have our think tanks not only one piled in one islamabad in the corner of islamabad we have multiple think tanks look at india look at bangladesh look at other regional countries i'm not giving examples of uh, countries uh, in the west look at them in the, uh, only bangladesh they have more than 89 90 think tanks over the uh, after after the uh, separation look at india they have more than 190 think tanks and they are like publishing like anything they are contributing like anything so there are so many things on our part which we need to do also then i think we will be able to actually influence if we have something already in place and donors come up with a report and says hey, look we did this in kenya and it's working we will tell them look this we have in pakistan and it's not working or it's working we will do go by that so it's okay. also our okay. part and their part we need to learn and we need to uh, thank you, know, you very much thank you very much very kind of you great webinar fahim thank you very much fahim now get down and do some serious work look but 30 years ago ali khan and i wrote a paper which is still available on the imf website where we proved we proved mathematically empirically everything that foreign consultants are worse than domestic people and i think the donors should look at it but the problem is foreign aid is a system where we are considered as lab rats unless we stand up for ourselves if an organization a counterpart of pid held a webinar in china or in korea all the donors would be there you have to win the respect of your partners we cannot win the respect for our of our partners by being slaves to them we are basically lab rats we give our data to them for them to analyze we don't analyze it for ourselves we don't think for ourselves the fault is ours i agree entirely but the reason we are having these webinars is to create awareness perhaps our, our children younger folks would rise up and stand for themselves and build the policy community necessary to reclaim our country because right now let me put it this way 1947 happened we had a seminar with gustav papanek we had a webinar with um marcus dexel you can see we never gained independence idea wise because from day one papanek and people like that have ruled us guys claim your country back thank you very much wonderful webinar we'll have another one tomorrow on the same subject on usaid with another phd thesis by hussain nadim tomorrow at 7 pm join us please all the best thank you folks i thank all of you from the bottom of my heart bye bye